Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a special poetry reading and discussion with poet Joanne Kiger, hosted by Steve Heilig. This episode is titled On Time, Poems from 2005 to 2014. So we're here for an intimate <laughs> afternoon discussion, uh, welcoming Joanne Kiger to the New School at Commonweal. And I've actually been wanting to do this for quite some time, but we took the opportunity to wait until her new book was out on time, which is her first book in a decade or so, a collection area, and actually collects the last, no, 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 or selects. Not. I had a book out two years ago. The select, the... No, the little tiny... Yeah, yeah. First, so this is a selection, though, from the last uh, ten years of, of poetic writing. Um, and we're going to talk and hear some of the poems from here. I will just say, by way of introduction, because we're going to talk more about her background, but I first met Joanne in the 90s when uh, she would occasionally give writing classes here in town uh, in the afternoons, six or eight weeks in the afternoon, and I thought, I had just gotten a, a small grant, like a miniature version of what our Commonwealth founder, Michael Lerner, has, which he gets, he had a MacArthur Award with the genius grants that come with a lot of money. I had like the homeopathic version of that, a little tiny bit, that, and the, the only instructions were, do something that you wouldn't normally do. And I thought, well, you know, I will learn about poetry and maybe even write some, because it's something I've never done before. I just always found it kind of daunting and foreign to me, although I would read lots of lit, uh, literature, fiction, but not poetry. So I signed up thinking that, cool, we're going to go in the afternoon, we'll sit around, it'll be really casual, and then afterwards we'll drink wine and just just talk, you know, afterwards. But it turned out to be a very structured and disciplined class where she would assign readings and writings, and you were supposed to show up and critique it and, and uh, read and talk about what you had uh, learned in the week and bring some writings of your own and read them to the group. And then we sat around and drank wine and talked crap for it for hours after that. Ended up becoming uh, great friends and actually uh, at some point uh, she had me, she said, I'm going away for a month, would you do the local newspaper? The new edition is out today. That was probably 10 years ago. I've since learned that's how it's done. You say, we well, take it over for a month and then, um, then you're stuck with it the rest of your life, I think, so... So that's a great honor that has only come about, too, because of Joanne. So um, I, of course, knew of her reputation. The first book I read of hers was actually a journal, the Japan and India journals, which uh, uh, was a quite famous work that has been reprinted. And um, I found it so engaging and so real and, so, and, and actually divulging a lot of uh, really personal information and it just made the trip come alive, and this was a legendary trip that she took with Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg uh, back in the early 60s. So from then on, she's been publishing ever since, and uh, long before that as well, and we'll talk about some of her works. But for to start this off, I want to turn it over to Joanne and have her introduce some of her newly published work in this book, On Time. So Joanne, please go ahead. Thank you. I'm going to stand up to read. So you can hear me better. Actually, the class I gave was not on poetry, which I would never, <laughs> ever try to teach, uh, which was on just journal writing, open notebook writing, write anything you want. Mary was in the class. So there was no criticism involved in whether you had a good or bad poem. I'm going to read something from Soko Morinaga. 
The mind with which you were born is a mind that moves freely. It reacts wholeheartedly to everything it encounters, to everything on which it reflects. So Kosan, I used to know him as Kosan or Soko Morinaga. I knew him when I lived with over the four years when I was in Japan from 60 to 64. He was the head monk at Daitokuji Monastery. It's from his book, what I just read, uh, Novice to Master, an Ongoing Lesson in the Extent of My Own Stupidity. And I closely identified with the phrase, extent of my own stupidity, which I guess one is always constantly reminded of. I was given this book by a, an American student of his, uh, who studies in his lineage, a guy named E.H. Mann, who was also a friend of Steve Heilig's, who came out here to Bolinas and performed a tea ceremony in a little tea house here on the Bolinas Mesa. And uh, he introduced me to Kosan and told me one of his students had started a monastery up in Humboldt County, Daishu in West. I always remembered Kosan because he was so amenable and accessible in a place where a kind of distant or distinct formality reigned at Daitokuji Monastery. And he offered to let me sit in the main Buddha hall of Daitokuji when conditions at the Ryosanan, the temple I was sitting at, had uh, become difficult. And a huge Buddha uh, dominated the hall. It was a bit intimidating. So I wondered what kind of meditation clothing I should wear, wondering if I needed the black robes of the monks. And he said, oh, just wear something to match your hair. <laughs> and I thought this was so delightful that I wore exactly what I wanted. Uh, and here's a little piece I wrote about that. Belongs to everyone. Just read through my four years in the Japan Journal. It took about 20 minutes. And the incident I hoped to find was never written down. <laughs> what color robes shall I wear? Oh, something to match your hair. Always now, enjoying the moment, waiting for the rain, which has already started. Night Palace. The best thing about the past is that it's over when you die. You wake up from the dream, that's your life. Then you grow up and get to be post-human in a past that keeps happening ahead of you. You go to war. These poems are all in chronological order, so it reads like a kind of, in this book, a kind of history of bits and pieces and quotes that go on. You go to war with the army you have. You probably remember who said that. Uh, the froth of rapid associations is entirely in the mind. This here is not moving. Our garden has become overrun with a new generation of scrub jays. They make very loud sounds and fly about aggressively pecking holes in the apples. To make them fly away, we clap our hands or tap on the window. They mostly learn to shut up. The other day, our friend from Argentina saw us run out on the deck after lunch and clap our hands. He thought it was some kind of new age California ritual to end a meal. <laughs> Time later to find out what went right and what didn't go right, right? 
The mockingbird nearby is replicating the quail's three-note descending call. Time to move the ashes back to the main house. Bits of my friends, Nancy, Philip, and quite remorselessly ashes I can no longer identify, planning to put them in the ground under a large rock, which isn't there yet. Writing poems at the beginning was a place to put some untidy emotions until I realized nobody wanted to read about them. This sounds like a simple improvisation, but actually it's composed. To the cemetery on the Day of the Dead with marigolds, one for each grave that we know and one for the old, old ones. Vincente Fox, the last president of Mexico, says in his memoir that George Bush walks like he has a watermelon under each arm. <laughs> Sunday morning rain, oil still, spill, still moving along the shore. European Parliament last week, during the F European Parliament last week proposed turning the Afghanistan poppy crop into legal opium-based painkillers. So impatient with the young lo locals posturing of entitlement. What do you think about that? Turning the poppy crop into legal opium-based painkillers. That would be, wouldn't be wasteful. The art of living slowly. How I wish I'd had my hair cut before being photographed at the local figure drawing show last Saturday, which will live on the front page of the weekly coastal news for as long as paper and air last. <laughs> and may I ask, how old is air? holding the sorrowful remnants of little nations, conquering littler nations, whose names we don't even know anymore, although the ground remains the same in patient aging, or you can drop the patient part. This ground is changing, always changing. Fact-checking. In 1962, when I was leaving India with Gary Snyder, I saw a necklace called a beggar's necklace made of semi-precious stones that I wanted. Gary said, yes, you can buy it if you learn the real names of all the stones. Mm. Never pass up an opportunity for self-education. The New Yorker magazine is doing a profile of Snyder and I told the reporter Dana Goodyear this story and showed her the necklace. A New Yorker fact-checker, Chris Jennings, called me up yesterday and wanted to know how many different stones there were in the necklace. <laughs> Dana wrote that there were dozens. I went and got the necklace <laughs> and counted the different kinds of stones over the phone to the fact-checker. <laughs> Eight different kinds of stones. Red, orange, <laughs> green, Milky white, blue, mossy green, mottled brown, glittery rust. And then it turns out that um, Chris Jennings recently got in touch with me uh, when he heard he was in this poem. And he is now writing a book and is no longer a fact checker but lives in Lagunitas. And he said he would like to visit soon so I can sign his copy of the, of the book with this printing under his name. He's the son of the late Peter Jennings. Uh, I'm very busy now, so I can't answer those questions about beat women poets. 
A startled melancholy underlies all. The party's over for the dollar. Blood-splattered wallpaper would make would find a substantial market niche. Is that you don't want to do it? Or is that you can't make the private public like the poet? But does the public want to hear it? U.S. has a lot of enemies. Are they mine too? Not a very nice night. I'm stuffing a long woolen muffler into this person's mouth. <laughs> there are those Buddhists, like myself, who do not scorn the idea of mere things possessing a sanctity of their own. John Blofield. Unlimited growth on a planet of finite size. The brisk spring wind sets in motion the wheel of mind, restless as five monkeys running in place. At least it's entertaining when their dreams of many energetically bringing Zen from India to China to Japan to California and New York riding on a wave of understanding and, like sunlight, arriving without a sound. Mocking yourself. A night full of yellow rubber duckies leads one to the low tide of the imagination. Actually, someone's really out there picking up sand dollars after picking up the daily news. Yuck, what a blast of the nasty past with failing banks. Guess what? You get no interest whatsoever in this melancholy climate of late afternoon. For heaven's sake, learn how to take care of more than yourself, balancing the give and take of what it takes to make a wholesome change into the American dream going south without a jot of understanding about these phony wars and delirious debt. A great vampire squid is wrapped around the face of humanity. That was a reference to Goldman Sachs. And no more public ownership of seeds, which is as discouraging as the compost grinder, disgorging sounds across the road like a semi-truck, idling its motor from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Very pissed off, turn on the jazz station really, really loud possibly annoying another neighbor behind me. Remember, before it all quickly drains away, you were practicing patience today. <laughs> so that's a, a homeopathic taste of why you can see why Joanne is a renowned reader of her own poetry. And you actually write your poems with that in mind, with the, the making them for reading aloud. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And the spacing and line breaks and all of that is, is done with that in mind. Yes, I think of uh, the space on the page, the way I put it down, is a way to score your voice for the page. So it's like a piece of music. Um, I don't know a lot of poetry. Philip Whalen said, don't go for that cookie-cutter kind of poem, which means that you have this left-hand margin, a little shape like this, and clunk. This is a poem. But I was fortunate enough to learn about 
something called the open page, the page is an open field for phrases and words uh, to indicate how to breathe and how to emphasize and uh, how to score the page for the voice. Like a period means a full stop, breath, a comma is a semi-breath, and you have an open, a little open space, that means a little, little breath, a littler breath. Um, and as the line starts from the left to the right across the page, the emphasis is always on the left-hand side, so as it moves across the page, there's a less of an end. You think of the eye taking that long to get there all the time, so your eye is scanning the page. Um, and I got this from William Carlos Williams and Charles Olson, who famously, in his projective verse, see if you can get this, telling the writer to move the energy from the poem to the reader. So it's an energy exchange all the time. The head, by the way, of the ear to the syllable. The heart, by the way, of the breath to the line. So this circular, so which I was meaningful for me because it engaged the whole body in um, the heart and the breath and not just the mind in writing. Uh, you have to really give yourself permission to, to write, to create whatever form you want to make in something that you call a poem. Uh, I, th I think of using the poem as kind of a daily focus of observation, you know, seeing where your mind goes. And at the end of the day, that's kind of over. Did I answer your question? So far. Pretty long. <laughs> I mean, would that, would some of that fits, um, would that fit under the, the rubric of craft, of actually, you know, because, I mean, the, one of the misconceptions, I think, that's out there about poetry is anybody can write it any way they want, and maybe that's the case. But what you're arguing for, and you actually, a quote or a line in there said, um, it looks like it's spontaneous, but it's actually very uh, composed, right? And so that's actually something that's difficult to do. And when you say you learned it, but how did you learn that? Where was, was it school training, uh, apprenticeship, just, or just by doing? I guess all of those things. One of the great tests for a poem is, can you bear to read it back out loud to anybody, or can you bear to read it to yourself? If you can't, if you can't do any of those two things, it's time to put it away. <laughs> Going even further back, so this, this great collection, As Ever, which was selected poems that came out a dozen or so years ago, was, was uh, dedicated to those who love to read. Uh, what do you remember, your earliest memory of, of reading? What were you reading that kind of turned you on to that, that world? Dick and Jane books. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> I read before I even knew what the words were saying. I mean, it's just this, there was no television when I was growing up, of course, but, but it was allowed one to go into your, another space altogether. I, mean, I love the Wizard of Oz books. There was a book I really loved called Live Dolls, <laughs> which all the dolls came alive, cooked pancakes and <laughs> did all sorts of wonderful things. And from then on, books have always been my company. I, I always feel nervous when I go anywhere if I don't have a book in my bag somehow, just a way to soften the edges of the world around. And how about poetry? What are you, what's your first memories there of being 
captivated. Robert Service. <laughs> I, we, when I went to school in Lake Bluff, Illinois, we had to, everybody memorized poetry in those days. So we memorized, uh, the classroom would memorize poems. So we would repeat them all out together. So we went through Longfellow. But I remember Robert's service, The Cremation of Sam McGee. I thought that was about as good as you could get. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, Longfellow, pieces from Shakespeare. I think learning to uh, memorize poetry out loud, you know, all those particular rhythms and sounds kind of stay within you. And what, when you, do you have a memory of first writing actually yourself? Well, my first poem was published when I was in kindergarten. Um, I was gonna say, there's a previous interview here, it says, <laughs> this is from here, it says, at the age of five, my first poem was published in the literary and news magazine of Naples Elementary School in Long Beach, California. I closed my eyes and told it to the teacher who wrote it down. The only one in kindergarten to make it in print that year. <laughs> Precocious. Yeah, right? do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay. Of course. When fairies go flying in circles, they look like rainbows in the hills. Oh. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost haiku. I know. Right. I don't think I've gone any further than that. So then you, so that was back there, you came near with your family to California, to Santa Barbara, went to, Vallejo first? Went, no, went to uh, Illinois, then yeah. to Pennsylvania, and then back to Santa Barbara when I was in junior high school. Right, and you were there through college, mm -hmm. and then you came north. The North Beach. 1957. Mm -hmm. And there was another great description of uh, you Arriving in San Francisco, Kiger found work at Brentano's bookstore in the elegant City of Paris department store downtown. And she remembers, quote, taking a lot of dexedrine and going to the job in my capizios and lands dresses. I have it written down there. Sitting at a, this desk, ordering books from New York and typing my poems. And so then you, from, from Union Square, you would go to North Beach, probably after work, right? Through the tunnel, maybe. Stockton Tunnel and so forth. Right. And so how, what was happening there? How did you connect with the, the poetry scene, as it were, that was happening at that point? This is late, mid to late 50s. Well, Grand Avenue was a great, great source of, of um, music and writing and I guess you could call it bohemian then. It was just on the verge of becoming beat um, everyone said to me, I said, this is so great. This is, like, this is like going to graduate school. And they said, oh, you should have been here last year. That's when it was all going on. <laughs> and that's followed me through my life, including moving to Bolinas. They said, you should have been here last year. <laughs> um, and there's a, there was a place called The Place, uh, run by this guy named Leo Krikorian, who had, was a Black Mountain uh, student. And a lot of Black, Black Mountain had, uh, College had closed the year before, so a lot of uh, students had moved to San Francisco to study with Robert Duncan or Jack Spicer. Uh, and I met those group of young writers. Everybody was 23, and they had a Sunday afternoon gathering in which Jack Spicer and Robert Duncan would read their poems, and then if you had something, you would read yours, and they would, 
either respond or not respond, and so forth. And they finally said, you, you just can't come here anymore and drink wine out of saucepans and <laughs> carry on. You're going to have to read your own work. So I did the next time, and I passed. So then I got to be part of the group that went on. John Wieners, who was there? John Wieners, Harold Doe, Ebba Beauregard. Um, Were there any other women there? I mean, it's a really male scene, right? It was almost all men as far as... There was Diane Wachowski, but she burst into tears at the criticism, so she didn't go anymore. (laughs) Fortunately, I was immune to things like that. <laughs> couldn't take, she couldn't take the heat. Huh? No, I saw you, you. There's a story there about somebody just being a criticism of having their their poem actually burned. Would you tell that? Oh, that's David Meltzer was reading something. He was reading. Uh, he was going to the cellar and reading jazz to poetry. So you had really long poems you would read that would go on. So he had this really long poem. He was standing up on a chair. It was so long. So <laughs> and he read all the way through it, and then he. Turned it over, and oh my God, there was another, the taped together pages, there was another, uh, there was more on the other side, and that's when Robert Duncan and Jack Spicer ran up and set fire to the <laughs> bottom of the poem. <laughs> For the bottom of the poem, and it kind of brought it to an end. <laughs> and so there was quite a, you met a lot of people there, I mean, uh, that were, that some who went on to great notoriety and fame as well. I mean, one with the local connection was Richard Brodigan, and you guys were Richard, young together. Right. Um, you met in North Beach, and uh, he said you had great memories of hanging out with him and, I don't know, stealing food or something, you know? I never stole any food. Okay. <laughs> but eating very cheaply and hanging out. Yeah. Cheaply, right. When they're just starting out and starting in small uh, presses and printing... Uh, well, that's Broad how books size. were published in, in, in those days. So White Rabbit Press started. It was um, printed at, uh, by Joe Dunn, student of Spicer's at the Greyhound. It was a Multilith Press. And um, books sold for 25 cents. I remember thinking, should I buy a book or should I have another beer? <laughs> and uh, they, were, they were beautiful books, actually. They're very special and rare today. They printed Charles Olson and Robert Duncan and Spicer. And it was that like you didn't wait for a publisher out there to pick you up. You did your own publishing and, and work. Uh, did you meet uh, Don Allen, the publisher then too? And he was editor he came, of the great uh, came, poetry anthology. He was, came through looking for poems for his anthology. He had gone to school in Berkeley earlier with uh, Spicer and Duncan. But he was at that point editor, an editor of Grove Press. And later he moved to um, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And City Lights was there, of course. And, uh, of course, doing... and the Howell trial was going on, which was very exciting. And so you met Ginsburg then around that time too first? I met or... him later, that, later. met him in 58 when he came out to read Kaddish. And um, there was a, some kind of resentment on the point part of Duncan and Spicer about who was this New Yorker coming in and spreading this beat thing and bringing all these uh, tour buses through Grand Avenue to look at the beatniks. And uh, so we went to his reading, and he started to read Kaddish, and Spicer said, 
do you like this? And we were all his little acolytes lined up next to him. He said, do you like this? And I said, well, you know, I kind of do. He said, it's too bad, we're leaving. So we all got up and left. And uh, he, then Ginsburg went down to um, South America. And that's when he went on his great ayahuasca hunt. How about, do you have memories from that time of Jack Kerouac, of meeting him? And he met him once when he came back. Uh, I was living at, in 59 at the East West House. And there was, I think they were showing Pull My Daisy. And he, a very sensitive, sweet man who um, I remember mostly because he was laying on the kitchen floor of the East West House, sort of in a too much to drink state. But very sensitive, but I never, never did really get to know him. No, you did get to know uh, Gary Snyder though at mm -hmm. that point too, and you actually wound up going off to Asia with him. After after a year, I joined him in Kyoto, mm -hmm. where he was studying at Daitokuji that I mentioned mm -hmm. in the beginning. And you were then, that was the beginning of your own study of, of Buddhism and Zen? I had started the year before when uh, Shinryu Suzuki came over and started the first, started the Zen Center over on Bush Street. The uh, congregation there had wanted someone. So he came over and um, when I came back four years later, the uh, Zen Center had, was well established. There was a real uh, American Sangha. English-speaking Sangha by then, but when I first met him, he's, he's, he didn't have any English at all. So everything was in pantomime. I was there with a friend, Bill McNeil, and one or two other uh, foreigners, gaijin, that went in the morning. And so he would kind of show you how to sit and face the wall and Soto style. Very sweet man. And over there, it was a fairly strict and demanding form of Zen and, and practice. Right? Soto Zen is a lot easier and more relaxed. It just says, just sit, shikantaza. Whereas uh, Rinzai, the form that Snyder was in and where I sat, and the form that really caught the America's imagination had to do with koan study. Uh, D.T. Suzuki had written a lot of books in English about uh, Rinzai Zen, and the idea that you would have these little mind puzzlers that you would solve was something you could, your mind could grasp. Uh, and they became more appealing to Americans with their intellectual uh, direction. You're listening to a conversation with Joanne Kiger and Steve Heilig. So that was, um, was unlike what uh, Suzuki finally, <coughs> Shinryu at the Zen Center finally, and of course they have a, a long and huge poetic tradition there, both Japan and China, of all the, the poets there uh, that you must have been exposed to then and in, in reading too. And not really. There wasn't not, too much in English. Yeah. You know, there was about two books on Zen in English in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, now there's a zillion, you know. Uh, but uh, no, there wasn't too much there. And, and, and we were encouraged too, at least I was encouraged, don't read anything about it, just have your own experience. So don't, you know, don't intellectualize this. But we digress. No, that's no. what we're doing. The whole, the, whole, the whole thing's a digression. So you, <laughs> Life is a digression. <laughs> you are, and so then at 
some point after you'd been there a while, Ginsburg came over and you all took off on a trip. To no, we Holocaust. met him over in... Oh, you met him there, yes. There. So. And uh, Snyder and I first traveled. We went to all the Buddhist uh, sites, holy places. There was no more Buddhism in India when we went there. It, it long since ceased to be a functioning religion until the Tibetans were... Beginning of the Tibetan diaspora. So they went to all the... The Buddhist, you know, religious sites where the Buddha was born, where he got enlightened in Bodh Gaya, and there was so going to all these sites, we ran into Tibetans, which I thought were looked like American Indians. I thought they were very exciting with their turquoise and coral and hardy, outgoing. And you went, you met the Dalai Lama too. Right? Went and saw the Dalai Lama, right? And there was there's some fairly, uh, I guess humorous passages in your journals about that meeting with Ginsburg there. And well, there's three journals that came out. Gary yeah, wrote all, one, and Alan wrote one, and I wrote one. Right. So you can depend on, you can decide whose story you want to... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't write any... They thought it... <laughs> no, they didn't make a joke out of it. <laughs> and so you came back to Japan and then back to California... And you came back to California on your own, right? Followed by Snyder. He, he took a, a um, worked on a boat, worked his way over and back. So he arrived about, you know, six months, four months later. And what year was that? 1964. Right. So... When you came back here, then you were starting, you reconnected with your poetic circle because you were writing then mm -hmm. uh, and actually published your first book. Don Allen published my first book, The Tapestry and the Web. Which is here. It's got a cover that you can never, ever put in the sun. Uh, so this book is 50 years old this year. Ooh. This is her first, first book. All right. I brought my own Kiger collection here, you see. So, <laughs> and so what do, you, what, do you, what do you feel when you see this? I mean, this is like the, the Rorschach text of psychiatry, you know. What, is, what does this mean to you, you know, in a sense? What, what do, you know? I just feel very fond of it. Yeah. It's built a lot around the um, Odyssey. I used to try to think, you know, the poet is a storyteller. What's the oldest story I know? Well, to, for me, that was Homer. So a lot of it's built around into and out of Homer's Odyssey as I took on various personas in, um, in the story. And then you went, you were back east for a while. After went this. to New York City for a year and then back to California. And you did, I think you said at one point that you kind of missed the whole uh, summer of love hippie thing that was going on here. But uh, we did have the, let's see, they had the bee in here. Keith Lampe, uh, Aka Ponderosa Pine, was back there when I was there. So we organized, he with a few other people, organized something in Central Park called the Spring Out. They could have a bee in, but we would have a spring out. And I remember people smoking banana peels. <laughs> Didn't have the same vibe that it did in Golden Gate Park. But it was uh, New York City's effort to celebrate this new whatever it was. hippie energy that would have <laughs> risen. Well, so, the, you know, I think uh, it was Brodigan actually once said something that he was, 
uh, too old to be, really be a beatnik and too young to be, or, or too young to be a beatnik and too old to be a hippie, really, right. in a sense, you know, somewhere in between that. And for some people, beat now is a four-letter word. Um, overused, and you've always, it seems to me, resisted being lumped in with the beat poets. Well, they, when beat, they decided that there was going to be a category called beat women poets, which is way after the fact for me, uh, and it didn't seem to be accurate, so I always resisted being clumped as one of those beat women was I think they put a book out recently, yeah. and these were women that had been neglected by the so-called chauvinistic male side of the beat generation. But I wasn't about to let that happen to myself, so I always felt that I was on my own terms mm -hmm. of writing. And when did you decide and why to move to Marin and West Marin? Well... I was a part of the moving out of the city, and um, I lived in Bodega Bay for a year before I came here uh, with Jack Poise. And uh, Bolinas just, I had, Bill Brown was living here then, publishing Coyote's books, and John Barrows, and, and Margot Doss had a house downtown. So I thought, if you keep going to a place and visiting, that must mean that there's a community of somebody there to talk to, instead of going up to Gualala and buying, you know, 5,000 acres <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So I moved to Bolinas because of that. And of course, I've reminded me of Lake Bluff, where I'd gone to grade school. I mean, here was Main Street with a library and a... The liquor store wasn't there then. It was a hairdressing salon and a post office and a gas station and a, a general bar. store. And I thought, what else could you want? And a pretty <laughs> empty mesa, too. And so that was, what, 68? 1968? Yeah. yeah. And so there was the beginning then of quite a poetic poetry scene. People were coming here from all around. Kind of. There was Tom Clark that was here mostly, uh, only, and he was an editor at Paris Review, which in those days carried a lot of cachet, actually paid for your poems. And uh, he was still editor, so Tom being here, then Bob Creeley came here, and then uh, Don Allen. So little by little, more poets came, and they had children and sent them to the local school and became part of the community. And then after the children grew up, they pretty much all left town. <laughs> so I think there's, what, Steve Ratcliffe here now, myself, mm -hmm. and a whole probably new generation of poets that I don't even know. Right. But at that point, there were probably more poets per capita in Bolinas than anywhere in the world, I would say, and presses, publishing as well, mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of extraordinary when you really look at it, how much was there. I think the next book of yours I have is this one. It's called Places to Go, mm -hmm. which I believe was 1970. Yeah, 1970, by Black Sparrow, which became famous for as the publisher of L.A. of Charles Bukowski, actually. So. That's where you got and it has me. this lovely photo. By Zoe Brown. So, what do you feel when you see this? I think what a nice photograph So Brown took. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a collection of latter 60s poems and so forth. Right. Right, yeah. Right, the travel, 
traveled to Europe for a year, then New York City. And then it, mm-hmm. Are you going to go through all these books? Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them were, were these small ones, too. Like one from the 70s here that I, I like to, The Wonderful Focus of You. This is uh, Z Press in Vermont. There you are marching along. Right. Uh, this was at the end of a um, sun festival mm-hmm. when, so um, a... <laughs> let me see, what was happening? There was, um, oh. <laughs> who was up on their horse? Um, Tom D'Onofrio, naturally. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> And I forget who took that picture exactly. And so, how did so you 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 were out here and what can you say about how you know really settling in here uh, on the mesa uh, influenced your your writing? Well, I had no choice. I was here. Yeah. You know, for at the very beginning, I bought a house early on. Was. Could buy houses for twelve thousand dollars then, sixty-seven dollars a month mortgage. I had no money whatsoever, but I somehow could come up with sixty-seven dollars a month. But I didn't have enough left to get out of town, so I just stayed here. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a great deal of acceptance about what's here is what you was what's here. Well, that's your life. And so, you, in, a, in a sense, you were also you were kind of. Journal keeping for the. I was stated everything. I felt it was important to find out who the previous people had been, so I went into a lot of Coast Miwok investigation and went and met David Perry, who was at Miwok, who was teaching at Sonoma uh, during that day, and he told me the story about the crystal out in the bay, crystal in Tamalpais, all the great mountains around here have a crystal. You have a crystal in your medicine bag, and that you, certain ceremonies, you tap the crystal. I never did find the crystal, the big crystal in Tamalpais. Then you go out to low tide and tap that crystal on a certain rock. And then if your heart's not pure, the crystal will send off these great strikes and strike you dead. (laughs) You gotta be careful. And there was a, quite a scene of uh, a lot of readings downtown. And Those were the days, yeah. Right, yeah. That was entertainment. Yes. <laughs> well, it was more than entertainment. It was actually uh, creativity and a lot of publishing going on. I know. I remember I did a reading once in which poems could be only one sentence long. I thought, we'll get through this really fast. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh-huh. And how did that evolve? When do you think that the kind of the era of the poets was fading out here? Really? Oh, probably around the mid-80s, late-80s. And due to, like you were saying, just people having to move on or and so forth. But you kept going, obviously. Um, you have not been, I would say, there are a lot of other renowned poets are more prolific, but uh, yours has been steadily kind of growing collection. Here's the actual republication of the journals, actually, that was republished some years later. It's going to be republished again Again? this year, Uh too. Yeah, see, it's a popular one, too. How about this one? That's Bill Berkson's... um, All uh, This Every Day, 1975. All This Every Day. And what's happening in this cover? This is down in Mexico, down in Chiapas. 
Francesco Polizzi took that picture. You want to go into my whole history? I want to yeah, read yeah. poems from it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to do that. Okay. So, yeah. And somebody else you met here that we want to talk about is the late, great Arthur Okamura. Right. Right? Who uh, wound up actually illustrating, doing the art for... Two the, books. For some of your books. Right. And... Uh, and this, the cover of the, Here. is that mine or yours? Oh, there it is. Yeah, this is a cover, painting of Arthur's. I think it's the last painting he did. It was in this show upstairs. It's called Waters. Not a perfect reproduction on it. Uh, Kitty Okamura gave permission to use it. And the book is also dedicated to him. And uh, I met Arthur when I first moved to Bolinas in 1969, and he was, I don't know, it happens to everybody that moves here. You get a very wary look when you first move to town, like, who are you? Or, so you're coming over and looking for you. But I've heard about him, of course, and he'd been here for a long while, since the 50s. And he was one of the really great collaborators in, uh, in lots of directions, in music and games and, and uh, he had a great, you know, he could play a great um, tuba made out of kelp, I remember, <laughs> it was really good. He was a pool shark. Pool shark, yeah. right. He actually was referred to somewhere as the Michelangelo of Bellinas. Right. For all the, the variety of things he did well. And uh, Lloyd Kahn uh, published a book of his um, for Shelter Publications a few years ago, of Arthur's tricks, he was really good at tricks, called the paper propeller, the spinning quarter, and the jumping frog, and 38 other tricks you can do with stuff lying around the house. <laughs> Illustrated by Arthur, of course. And he, he was very fond of um, a book published in 1979 called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of Your Brain uh, by Betty Edwards that came out. and. But actually, he could draw with the right side of his brain and the left side of his brain and upside down and backwards, which he could show you. It was just marvelous. And he was also on the board here at Commonweal until he died in 2009. I have a poem I wrote for his 77th birthday, which, alas, was his, the last birthday that he celebrated. <clears throat> um, it's kind of patterned after um, Say Shonagon, who was a woman from the uh, 1000s in, in, in Japan. She was part of the Empress's court, and she wrote a book called The Pillow Book, which is actually a list of things, um, you know, likes and dislikes and gossip and advice and stories. And, and uh, so I modeled this after her book, 77 Beautiful and Adorable Things or Arthur Okamura's 77th birthday. Shall I read that? Yes, please. A very beautiful, number one, I'll just read them true to 77. A very beautiful thing is the clay cup from your Kyushu family. An adorable thing is the face of a child you have drawn on a melon in the garden. Or King, he had a King Charles Spaniel. Or King Charles Charlie. This was written at, um, at Michael Lerner and Charles' house where I read it to him, and he, I remember the expression on his face as I was reading it was whether, am I going to like this or not? 
An adorable thing is the face of a child you have drawn on a melon in the garden or King Charles Charlie sleeping on his back. Simply beautiful is the great blue heron trying to get into your tightly guarded fish pond <laughs> and the way you draw Einstein and the way you draw yourself and the way you draw all those naked ladies. An especially, especially beautiful thing is watching you play ping pong on TV after you've eaten one of Margot Doss's brownies. <laughs> Both adorable and beautiful is when you draw from the right side of your brain and doze on the right side of your brain and take a shower with the right side of your brain and drive a car with the right side of your brain. Those quail eggs are simple and beautiful, as are Kitty's decorations at Christmas. Barack Obama's lips are very adorable when you mold them in Play-Doh. Quite beautiful is Rio Anji's classic stone garden and your painterly appreciation of it. Disgustingly unadorable is Dick Cheney on TV and George Bush falling off his mountain bike and falling off his couch all by himself watching the Super Bowl and getting a bruise on his face. <laughs> Refreshingly beautiful is a clear morning after heavy rain when you wear your vest of skilk and make a perfect pot of rice and a monarch butterfly nonchalantly flies through the open door and lands on top of your pen while you draw. Beautiful and adorable things that you never paint are unicorns and cherry blossoms. Sometimes adorable are the flowering tree dahlias which have taken over your garden, but never need to be watered. It is beautiful when, but it is beautiful when much praise for insights are given, especially when they are yours and you just made them up on the spot. Really beautiful is a Bob Creeley poem you haven't even seen before that mentions you by name or when someone compares you to Rembrandt or refers, refers to you as the Michelangelo of Bellinus. You have a bad dream and consult a dream interpreter. Who tells you the dream is actually beautiful. Hillary Clinton is visiting in town and holding forth about a recent event. Several people stand near her, but it is you she keeps looking at as she talks. You've lost something, start to look for it and find it right under your nose. Someone gives you drawing paper of a very fine quality made in Belgium and you immediately do a charming drawing of Charlie's profile, which the neighbor's envious dog then tries to pee on. <laughs> it is both beautiful and adorable that you can turn yourself into a rabbit and pull yourself out of a top hat you have just drawn. And it is both beautiful and adorable when you cluck your friends under the chin and impressively beautiful when you skip rocks along the lagoon channel and jump from a standing position onto the bar at Smiley's and play the saxophone under almost any conditions, including when the saxophone is made of sea kelp and play a game of cribbage and make heavenly barbecued pork and carve radishes into roses. It is exceptionally adorable to watch Charlie's large eyes and total poker face and wonder what he is thinking about, or if he is thinking at all. It is also adorable when you take a pair of scissors and cut out one of those little men, you know, the one whose penis waves up and down. And when you ask someone to draw three trees, a road, and a fence, and you read their entire life history from the drawing. It is plaintively beautiful when you make a paper airplane out of a $100 bill and it flies out the window and it doesn't even bother you because you know it's not really real. And it is really adorable when you make rings out of U.S. currency that people can wear on their fingers in case of emergencies.
And of course, it is totally adorable when you pull out your pipe and offer a toke, but you never show the effects because you're using because you are using both sides of your brain simultaneously while painting a picture of Marilyn Monroe upside down. It is very beautiful that you can take the San Francisco Chronicle and turn it into a tree or a tropical fish or a very large star. Mostly, it is terrifically beautiful and adorable that you are a perfect being because perfection is in the eye of the beholder and you have taught us to use our eyes and you have taught us to use the right side of our brain and the left side of our brain as you are one of the brainiest painters who ever lived. And so our eyes are beholden to your inventions and terrific use of color to transform the air into this birthday celebration for without you, we would have nothing to have a beautiful and adorable party about. <laughs> that's Arthur, and so what a tribute. So here, here are, he did just face, which the, was... That's not his drawing, but actually, inside I mean, that's, uh, that's, what do you call it? Here's, uh, actually, one around the, there's some more drawings in there. Actually, he went around the garden where I live with his little sketchbook and sketched out a lot of different other ones in here. I can leave them out. Very nice illustrator. For everything else, I don't remember, did he ever write poetry? Probably. But you don't know either, yeah, see? I don't think I don't he was think. boastful about it. Right. <laughs> well, he was such a... Uh, respected and beloved figure that we had his uh, memorial I'm sure many of you were there upstairs here and filled the room with hundreds of people uh, at that time uh, some of the references in the the new collection I note in the last decade and longer were have been more for lack of a better term more political than <coughs> your previous work often you know uh, wondering if there's a lot of references to specific politicians and incursions overseas, and uh, was that something new for well, you? Did you feel that that well, was... Well, at that point, with uh, Bush becoming president and the Iraq invasion, I mean, you just couldn't, couldn't ignore it. I mean, that's what the reality in the forefront was about. So the intention there was to illuminate that, to speak oh, out to against it? Oh, to complain about it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else could you do? I don't know. Really? Because well, so it's part of the function. We were talking uh, some time ago about some famous poet, and he said something like, I don't think her poetry does what poetry is supposed to do. Mm. I'm not going to name who that was. Who? I can't remember. I would twist her arm. <laughs> Somebody from long ago, I think. But not, Long so, ago. <laughs> but which, which, which brings up the question of what is, you know, in the broadest sense, what, what is, you know, poetry to do? sense. I mean, some people say it's to make uh, the great truths of the world or the most uh, important ideas more accessible, illuminate them for people, or is it just self-expression? Or It's all those things. Po poetry can be anything. And anything. But much of it is, uh, you know, I found this journal of poetry, much of it is, is, seems to be, and many people's complaint, including probably my own, is that it's willfully obscure. Uh, so this this was I found this I may be at the bookstore downtown, American poet, and it had a, an article in here. Um, Sven Bickert's poet Burkert's 
on clarity and obscurity and poetry. And the article itself was so obscure, I couldn't figure out what he was trying to talk about. So, you know, what does it really mean? So, I mean, this has been one of the complaints about poetry in the broader sense, and it's something that you've actually, I think, tried to avoid and have talked about making it understandable. You know, when poetry taught in in academia, and that was true during, quote, the so-called Beat Generation, too, which was a, Ginsburg's howl was a big breakaway from the, quote, East Coast academies, uh, to put it back into the spoken word, back into the streets, if you want, again. Poetry taught in schools, you know, it's gone through its various permutations of poetry talking about poetry, you know, language talking about language, the Derrida, etc., etc. But for, for myself, and uh, what we, there was a certain point out here where the Berkeley poets were writing poetry. We had the Berkeley Poetry Wars, which were about poetry that seemed to be drifting off in that direction of, of language talking about language and not really telling you what was going on at Smiley, say. But for myself, I always wanted to keep it as simple and as grounded uh, as possible, you know, even if it sounded like baby talk. You know, I just wanted to keep it open and clear. I think your friend, uh, the wonderful poet Lou Welch, his saying was, it should be something that you can read in the bar without getting beat up. (laughs) 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 And I asked you once about, I think, uh, you know, because I've never been able to figure out exactly what postmodernism is. And you said, yeah. you said, well, first we have to figure out what modernism was. <laughs> yeah. Modernism, I guess that starts with Eliot and Pound and Marianne Moore, mm-hmm. earlier part. I don't know what we would, what do we call the poetry today? <laughs> well, did you have, if you were forced to uh, winnow your collection down to, say, a handful of five poets or books, I mean, who would be your greatest, the people that you most want to read and most uh, love and respect their work? Tough question, I know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I always like the work of someone like Albert Saijo. He's only written two books, and there's... You know, my friends. I like my friends' books, as long as they're my friends. <laughs> you know, something that's accessible. Uh, there's so many poetry books out now that it's hard to say which ones do you keep on your shelf. Philip Whalen has always stayed uh, of interest to me. Mm-hmm. There's a one in your new uh, collection about Albert Sajo. You want to read that one? Yeah. Do, do you mind if I read just a few? And add, oh, no, I have to say, you can I read that one. We'll have there. Some. Yeah, you have I, that in there? Okay, great. I, I was going to ask okay. you to read this one because I enjoy well, it this, this poem is called Write Something About Poetics. Okay, perfect. Okay. Uh, Set you up for that one. <laughs> up again on your feet. Write Something About Poetics, somebody asked me. I, and this has actually happened. I dream about a totem pole of poets. Actually, it was a poster Andrew Hoyam did for a reading of Bellinus writers in the early 70s at SF MoMA, and we're sitting on each other's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Now the local wild is pretty, looking pretty trimmed and tame. This is a 2011. With extreme conditions being the new weather-born norm. Where did all those last night thoughts go about emptiness? 
and the majority being those who have passed away from us. Peter Matheson talks about, he had a teacher who talked about the majority, and the majority were, were those who had passed away, were no longer here. They're called the majority, which some I thought appealing, were about emptiness and the majority being those who have passed away from us. You're listening to a conversation with Joanne Kiger and Steve Heilig. I don't like the word old when speaking about myself, preferring the word mature. She is in her mature years watching the great blue heron strike a gopher in its hole and gulp it down. I haven't seen too many great blue herons recently. Albert. When I came back from a trip to Europe and New York in the late 60s, I found the summer of love and the Bay Area awash with psychedelic participants. I went to visit Albert, who was living in Mill Valley. He showed me some new household practices he had learned. When you are sweeping the floor in the morning, take a piece of newspaper, dampen one edge and lay it on the floor. Then you sweep all the dust onto it and fold it up and put it neatly in the wastebasket. <laughs> and then I asked him, how can I understand this new hippie culture? Albert said, well, when you wake up in the morning, get stoned. And I mean really, really stoned. If you do this every day, you can eventually change your consciousness. About 15 years later, when I saw him next, I asked, did you ever say when we were supposed to stop? <laughs> Stoutly maintains I never rewrite. People want to know, do you rewrite? So I said, oh, I never rewrite. But So what about those many sheets of drifting time and intense, hoping to pin down the elusive tone that makes a poem? Peripheral from the sidelines, looking in from the edge. Always give yourself a quick escape route at assemblies of people. Sit near an exit, be on the fringe, able to drift away from the front and center places where power plays a dangerous role on earth, the only place we can live. Head full of spring winds, pollen, self-radicalized through random reading. Did you do this to me? After having my teeth cleaned, day after day, they're numbered, even if you live in the now. I don't want to pursue you if you don't think this way, but really, how else can you make history unless you see time pass by with this chronology of cause and effect? A large willow branch breaks in the wind, now cut into pieces to burn when it dries during the summer's cold mornings. Wishing you clear new space upon your departure. It's for Leslie Scalapinos, or passage. Wishing you clear new space upon your departure. The space, of course, of foothills, mountains, rivers, oceans, and sky. And to rooms with all the books and the voices that murmur them all through time and the meetings with old friends and ones yet to arrive through the gates that open to let you pass. Last rays in the garden, 
They lasted a long time, didn't they, those rays? <laughs> active. As active as an overactive imagination. That's the wind you're hearing now. This reflection is meant to be refined by the simplest reduction led by the voice of winter wind reviewing history terribly old. A story is told in a single breath, so easy to remember, it blows right through you. If your body is ill, your mind needn't be. Joanna McClure can't remember Emily Dickinson's name and tells me what Jess Collins used to say. At your age, do you ever think about the hereafter? Yes, when I go into another room and ask myself, what am I hereafter? <laughs> Wherever you walk, there's a path for John Bruner. When words let go of you, who are you anyway? Every time you go away, a way opens up. Everywhere you are, where words are your path, your words are your path. And I'll close with this piece by uh, um, Albert Saijo called Bodhisattva Vows from his first book, Outspeaks, which I found hilarious. Bodhisattva Vows. Bodhisattva vows to be the last one off the sinking ship. You sign up and find out it's forever. Passengerless, endless. Ship never empties. Ship keeps sinking, but doesn't go quite under. On board, onks, panic and desperation hold sway. Turns out Bodhisattva hood is a f***ing job like any other. <laughs> but different in that there's no weekends, holidays, vacations, no golden years of retirement. You're spending all your time and energy getting other people off the sinking ship into lifeboats bound gaily for nirvana while there you are sinking. And of course you had to go and give your life jacket away. So now let us be cheerful as we sink, our spirit ever buoyant as we sink. <laughs> What's the name of the one about the bear? Destruction. Break. Destruction. What year was that? Yeah. Oh, that's way back there. 70s. See if you can find it. it in there? Do you want me to read that? Well, I, I will if you won't. So I'll read it's it. It's a threat. But... Yeah, do you have it? Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a classic. Well, it's of, yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, came out a few years ago. This was from the National Poetry Foundation. This is the collected poems that she refers to as the doorstop. It's the biggest one collected, so it's 40-something years of, of poems. Well, it's in, it's in there. It's in one year, right? I don't know if I brought it along. I've, I resist reading it because it's too much of a... Oh, what well. do you call those things? Old horses are flogging an old dog? No. Well, not everybody knows them. Here's a piece for Keith Lampy, who okay. passed on last fall. News bulletin from Keith Lampy. Soon. This is a direct transmission, by the way. Directly transcribed it. Little Neural Annie was fined $65 in the Oakland traffic court this season for driving while in a state of samadhi. 
<laughs> California's secular law requires that all drivers of motor vehicles remain firmly seated within their bodies while the vehicle is in motion. This applies to both greater vehicles and lesser vehicles. <laughs> all right, so this will be the last one? If you insist. Okay. Destruction. First of all, do you remember the way a bear goes through a cabin when nobody is home? He goes through the front door. I mean, he really goes through it. <laughs> then he takes the cupboard off the wall and eats a can of lard. He eats all the apples, limes, dates, bottled decaffeinated coffee, and 35 pounds of granola. <laughs> the asparagus soup cans fall to the floor. Yum. He chomps up Norwegian crackers stashed for the winter and the bouillon, salt, pepper, paprika, garlic, onions, potatoes. He rips the green Tara poster from the wall, tries the Coleman mustard, spills the ink, tracks in the flour, goes upstairs and takes a shit, rips open the waterbed, eats the incense and drinks the perfume. Knocks over the Japanese tansu and the Persian miniature of a man on horseback watching a woman bathing. Knocks shelter, whole earth catalog, planet drum, northern myths, truck tracks, and woman's sports into the oozing waterbed mess. He goes downstairs and out the back wall. He keeps on going for a long way and finds a good cave to sleep it all off. Luckily, he ate the whole medicine cabinet, including the stash of LSD, peyote, psilocybin, amanita, benzedrine, valium, and aspirin. True, true story? Of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... I'm wondering if anybody wants to ask questions or requests for Joanne here. Yeah, I was uh, happy to hear you mention Albert Sager because I was going to ask you how you first got connected to Albert. He was, uh, I stayed, he was at the East West House in San Francisco. He had come up from Los Angeles where he was living, studying down there too, I think. Uh, and so I met him then. Uh, and then later, I think he met, he went over to Mill Valley and uh, had his own Zendo over there. Uh, he has a new book that's just out, came out from, have you seen it? Yeah, I have it. You have it? Uh, from... Uh, from uh, from uh, Hawaii, it's a strange book. I mean, I, I love the manuscript, but the the woman that printed it decided that she didn't really like black ink on white paper, so she printed it in this kind of light gray color, and there's not enough space between each line. <laughs> and I I wrote to her about it. I mean, I did a little endorsement for the back, and I offended her. And she said that it was her own artistic decision that black and white really were too abrupt and that she would treat this. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to read a book that's kind of, do you have it with you? No. No, but I struggle, but I struggle with that. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. Right. I mean, he writes in blocks. 
So he, he writes with a voice that seems like out loud. You know, it's very wonderful. It's about living up in the Matol River uh, in the, what, 70s, 80s? And he did, he was... He's a great, he's a wonderful observer of everything. And he was famous for driving uh, across the country and producing a book called Trip Trap with he went Jack with Kerouac Lou, and Lou Welch. Welch. Yeah, yeah, after, 50, right. So, yeah. Is he still alive? Or is he oh. Alive? Oh, no, Albert died a few, five years ago. Yeah, I just had a question. Um, if you did read a lot of Chinese and Japanese poetry. Well, I read them in tra translation, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, Joanne, I'd just like to make a little comment that... Um, I really admire your poetry, and when you were talking about the purpose of poetry, I think that your poetry really shows the ability to elevate the mundane to the sublime. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really a gift, and it's a gift to all of us to be able to see, even in our daily lives, even in our humdrum activities, that it's actually poetic, artistic, and a wonderful, magical mystery. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you, do you. do you think it goes up to the sublime, though? I mean, it certainly is a focus on the moment, that the moment is is what you got. Yeah, I think it does go to the sublime. I think that's a good word for it. Great. That kind of transforms it from just an ordinary event to something that's very artistic and poetic. And I think that's the true purpose of poetry. I think and you just do it in madness. And you kept at it. You have to have an elevator to get up there, though. Yeah. <laughs> Elevate it. Well, it's said, said from a guy with a jacket like that, it's got to be true. I know. So, you know I've seen that. Yeah. 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 Well, in the in light of the sublime, I was wondering what it is that you really liked about the Oz books. Oz books. What I liked about the Oz books? Um... Their print was big. <laughs> the illustrations were great. There was, a, there was a believable fantasy. I remember trying to read Alice in Wonderland and getting a little upset over it somehow. It was transformations were happening too fast, but um, Oz books always had something you could under... You could accept, you know, except there was a guy with a pumpkin head. I remember there was one part that I really, all oh, I'll never forget, uh, in which they're walking along and they come to this little lake. They're all very hungry. And it turns out the lake is a big vat of stew. And, <laughs> and the little waves are white biscuits that are coming in. <laughs> and there's carrots and pieces of beef and peas. And somehow that just seemed to me the utmost grand, grandest thing you could have walking along and find a stew lake. <laughs> Must have been hungry. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like the importance of place in poetry in general, and kind of this place in particular with regards to your work. Well, I think when you start, whenever you put your hand to the page, you have to locate yourself. You have to be where you are, you know, so you don't get off and so it's always important place is always important because that's where you are so you always start from there 
And I, I use this, you know, I use the date and the time as a kind of an anchor to show that I'm here in this time and space, too. And then the more you're there, you know, the more there opens up for you. And it's various little plots and dramas. The gopher, gopher coming up by the door. Others? Yes? You, you said a couple of times you made a reference to, you know, what, wondering if the reader wants to read what you're writing or the listener wants to hear what you have to say. And I. That was a. important that really is. If you, just in terms of an urge to create something. I think if you personalize or internalize your writing too much and start getting into a. Uh, writing about your problems or whatever it is, does anybody really want to read that? Uh, quite frequently not. Um, so I think that's something you have to be aware of. It's not a confessional... So you meant specifically that kind of content might question. I think so. It might be interesting to write it out uh, to see what it looks like or what it feels like. But... Um, yeah, does anybody really want to read it? I mean, everybody's pretty much the same about their interior and emotional complaints. They're fairly basic, human. Um, Setting that aside, though, I mean, do you, if you, is it a, is it a big consideration for you when, when you're, when you feel like you, you know, have a, have a piece you want to create? You know, something that's not, you know, confessional personal process, but um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to find out is, do you feel like you just sort of write for yourself because you want to, and you're not particularly <coughs> concerned about a, a reader or, or a listener? No, I think I'm... First of all, I try to keep myself out of it as much as possible, so the pronoun I, you know, you have to be careful about who is that I when you use it. Um... I don't know if you write for yourself. Did I say that already? <laughs> no. Um, what, do you, why did you feel that? Was, is, is that a quest, question or a no, problem? I'm just, no, I'm just curious as, you know, as someone who thinks about creativity and, and you know, creating something. And, um... I don't think about creating, I don't think. At this point, when I'm writing... Um, you know, if you get yourself into a clear place before you start writing, your what comes out is fairly lucid. Uh, if you, I don't like to go on too long with any emotional state. You can refer to it to let say, okay, this is happening. But if you draw it out, you know that becomes a bit tiresome. That's uh, so why I change quickly. I mean, there's, you don't have to finish a thought. At least I don't feel you do. Some people might think, why doesn't she finish her thoughts? But, uh, you know, you, you get the first, okay, this is, a, you know, this, this person is, you know, putting this down and then go on to the next thing. Are you, do you consciously is? try to do a certain amount of writing each day or do you actually do it as a discipline and, and have a goal of producing a certain amount? I keep of a, a notebook. 
keep paper at hand. Um, you, I, can use, I use the laptop as a notebook sometimes. You just, I think I, by this point, I have a certain kind of way I translate words and write, a certain way I write. I might never be able to write again after this afternoon, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, it's in terms of self-examination. Um, and the, I mean, is it, does the volume of what you do, it really fluctuate? So you, do you have fallow periods where you're not really writing at all and then a, a whole bunch comes out, or is it fairly consistent, you think? Well, this is seven years worth of, Writing is not a whole bunch. No, I don't write a lot. Um, but I write something. I try to, you know, keep your hand in, keep your voice there. Yeah, I remember one of the classes, you know, were ex instructing us to try to do three lines a day. Yeah. You know, no matter what. See if you can get three lines a day out and see how that unfolds. Not necessarily haiku, but, you know, a certain amount. No. As a, as a practice. Yes. Um, I just had the uh, wonderful opportunity to hear uh, a discussion that was between Michael Lerner and David White um, that's uh, on the website, if people are, aren't familiar with the podcast, I, re I highly recommend it. It takes about an hour and a half to listen, so it, it's, it's quite unique um, opportunity to hear his process and what was interesting was he started his life in pursuit of uh, Jacques Cousteau was his initial inspiration, and so what I um, so in other words he went he got a degree in oceanography and and thought that was going to be his path and um, and he's gone on uh, he became a, a, obviously a, a poet instead, but all that background informed him of course right. Um, but some, somewhere along the line, he met someone who was a pivotal influence for him to pursue poetry. And, and one of the things I think that I hear you saying, Joanne, is that you're kind of reluctant to really identify that. Like to you, it's just, it feels like it's this floating kind of ecstasy that you tap into sometimes, and you're, but you're not, it's not so intentional. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. What I, what I really like about what you do and what I like about your, your, um, this conversation is that you have a, a wonderful gift for bringing the humor out in this journey that we're on. And, and, and that's pretty consistent with all your poetry. I don't really see, you're not, I don't feel like you're a, a dramatic poet. I feel like you're a sniff. I'm sure other people will feel that, but you're 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 a, you have a, a, a you make it seem very simple, like it's just about writing about you know sitting on the right. porch. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> trying to get into spontaneity. I must say when you when you write you understand you're part of a lineage of writing, that you didn't invent language. There's a long tradition of poetry, storytellers. You're, you're entering into a, a old tradition that has many, many forms, which you are always respectful of, that is there. 
and that words themselves have an incredible mind of their own. I mean, when you start trying to boss a word down around, you know, you find this. Listen, I've been around before you were, so you know, and I have my own way. I want my meaning to go. <laughs> so, um, so you you start out with that understanding that you're you're entering into a a, a history and a lineage of of uh, of writing. So you never think, you don't think that you're inventing it, you know, newly. But you want that freshness, you know, if you can get it. That uh, doesn't sound too overwritten or too many. You know, poetry wants to feel spontaneous. And if you start manipulating it and rewriting it, it's just like pastry dough. It just gets really, really tough, you know. And you can tell that, you know, I guess... Uh, that thing, what do you call from the American poetry, from the American Academy of Poets, you get a poem every morning, comes up on the computer. Now you can usually tell by the first three lines whether it's going to be somebody... It's a good day or a bad day. Or not. <laughs> but I'm still curious, you know. I mean, these are all considered poems. They all have that left-hand margin. You know, that always tells me something about how they feel that their form is already dictated before they even... You know, let the words go. But that's my own particular like or, you know, quote, criticism. You've, you've taught for many years at Naropa Institute, and you're doing it again in uh, this summer, the summer right. writing program. And uh, this one's writing in dream time that you're doing. Right. Um, do you want to say anything about what you do there? Uh... uh... I mean, is it a lot of students come from all they over? They come from all over. Some yeah. writing prose. Naropa was started by uh, Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman after he met Chogyam Trungpa, who was a Tibetan teacher that came here to the United States in the 60s, late 60s. Um, and they... What is... What is, what is their great dictum? First thought, best thought. That was uh, Trungpa and Ginsburg together. So they mostly used the tradition of, of American poetry coming from the new American poetry, Don Allen's history of, of uh, American poetry. In the early years when Trungpa was around, it was more of a party school. Or if, uh, now it's, people are serious about going to school. Uh, and, and, and the summer writing program has um, a different week, different teachers that come each week. So it's a, you know, kind of a dense exposure uh, to it. Workshops and, and still emphasize meditation uh, as a kind of bottom for... Focus. Would you read one more to finish up? Okay. I've got one here. You got one? Yeah. That looks pretty long. No, it's short. It's this <laughs> decade in Bolinas. About place. Oh, okay. Maybe you could pick it. I don't want to force you to want it. It's just that I would put out one of my favorite poetry anthologies of all is called A Book of Luminous Things. Uh, the no right. Nobel Prize winner, Meloche. And I believe, I'm not positive, the only poet where there were two poems instead of one is Joanne Kiger in this book uh, selection. So there's one if you want to do Miloš, it was very funny when he came. He visited to, you here, right? He visited us, and his, he was with this guy from Czechoslovakia. He said, do you have any grass? <laughs> and, and so I, well, 
maybe. Okay, so we called up a friend, had some, and came over. It was very strong, of course. And he got completely looped. His wife, his wife said, "Well, just, 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 what have you done?" Um, I can find. I can't find that one. Well, I can tell one by. Do you want me to read this one? Okay, here's a short one. I was visiting Donald's mother up in Canada a few years ago, and she was with the. This guy that was from the BBC, the Canada CBC, and he said, "Oh, you're a poet. What's a poem?" So I said, "Okay, let's see if I can remember it. No rock on bottom. Well, uh, and with March a decade in Bolinas, and this was way back, decades ago, and with March a decade in Bolinas, just sitting around, smoking, drinking, and telling stories, the news." making plans, analyzing, approaching the cessation of personality, the single personality understands its demise, experience of the simultaneity of all human beings on this planet, alive when you are alive. This seemingly inexhaustible sophistication of awareness becomes relentless and horrible, trapped, how am I ever going to learn enough to get out? <laughs> the beautiful, soft, and lingering props of the Pacific here. The back door bangs. So we've made a place to live here in the greened out 70s, trying to talk in the tremulous morality of the present. Great breath, I give you great breath. <laughs> Thank you, Joanne Kiger. I hope she will forgive me for putting her through this eventually. Oh, always. You've been listening to a conversation with Joanne Kiger and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.